Good day and welcome to our listeners. My name is Chris Yelland and I'm an energy analyst and managing director at EE Business Intelligence. This is the second in a series of four podcasts brought to you by the Rovigo Africa Energy Fund to build awareness of new investment opportunities in the renewable energy sector of Sub-Sahara Africa. In the first episode, we looked at the current state of renewable energy in South Africa. The Rovigo Africa Energy Fund is listing on the JSE this year and is focusing on owning stakes in a portfolio of operating renewable energy assets, initially in South Africa, but then broadening across the sub-Saharan region. Today we are joined by Michael Misa, Chief Investment Officer at Rovigo Fund Managers, Ziad Sarang, Chief Financial Officer at Rovigo Fund Managers, and Mohamed Hussein, Head of Power and Gas at NG Africa, to explore and understand what it takes to build, own, and operate an independent power producer, whether this be utility scale, off-grid, or self-generation. Mike, can you give us a brief overview of the independent power producer landscape? There's a number of developers in terms of how where it starts and stops. I think a, a developer needs to have a certain basket of skills allowing him to be a successful developer. That normally requires commercial acumen, uh, environmental, operational construction, and all those technical skills allows him to actually shape a, a, a transaction that complies with a process that is being run or not been run. Bearing in mind, not all IPPs are done on a procurement basis in response to requests for proposals. Some are done sort of uh, self-initiated um, and then look for buyers of the energy at the back end. So I think one is you need to have a skill set. Two, you need to have some form of self-funding and able to do this because it's not cheap. And three, uh, once you, I think the key, if you look at it, the key successful developers worldwide is about a proven track record. And that proven track record comes from taking a project from conception through bid, successful bid, raise the financing, build it out, and then start operating. Bear in mind, not all developers are operators, not all developers are contractors, and not all developers are suppliers. So there's a, a multitude of developers. Some are just pure developers, and some have a link to some form of the value chain. I think that's, uh, I think in a nutshell, what I think a developer requires to actually be successful. Uh, if I may expand on that uh, question uh, to uh, the head of NG Southern Africa, um, that is Mo Husson. Mo, you're a developer yourself. Uh, what do you see it takes uh, to be a developer, a successful developer? Uh, and then to develop a successful independent power producer. And finally, um, uh, to find investors to take this over from you as a developer uh, to enable you to uh, uh, make your money and proceed on to the next development project. Uh, or do you yourself uh, uh, take a, a, an ownership stake on a long-term basis? Chris, I mean, there's a few things that come into play when we look at um, development opportunities. If you look at it from the host country perspective, I mean, we all know that there needs to be a fiscal framework and a legal framework um, and a contractual framework that allows for certainty in terms of making these investments. I mean, these investments 
20-year uh, investments. Um, so we need to be comfortable around, as I say, the environment in which these investments happen. The second thing that is important to know or to understand is the need and requirement for um, an IPP investment. Uh, as you can imagine, IPPs by their nature means that you are embarking on an investment that is in direct competition with the host utility. So that realization, that acceptance for market competition, for acceptance of private sector investment in the marketplace is also a necessary requirement. Um, in terms of um, the investment itself, aside from the parameters that will determine the investment related to a specific opportunity, I think what becomes important as well is the environment. Uh, and when I say environment, I mean, as you say, um, interested participants, local participants and international participants that make it an attractive investment, that the liquidity in the market is there to enable financing of these type of um, investments. Generally, these are large uh, long-term investments. Um, and from an NG perspective, if we can tick the box on all these parameters, one of the philosophies we approach when we make investments is that we would want to be in this investment for the long haul. We, you know, we do the investment and we want to be there for the duration of the PPA, but we want to do it in collaboration with, you know, with local partners and local participants. So if all those, if all those, uh, let's say, parameters exist, um, then yes, we will evaluate each opportunity on its own merits and accordingly make those investments. Uh, Mo, if I can just expand a little bit further, um, because as a developer, um, I think you are faced uh, with these regulatory complications. Uh, and I guess in the world of, uh, uh, of utility scale, uh, renewable energy plants, where there's this renewable energy IPP program, uh, it's not so apparent. Uh, but when you are doing a renewable energy plant, uh, and wanting to wheel power to one or more customers uh, to allow them uh, a measure of self-generation uh, in contracting with an IPP. What are the regulatory hurdles uh, that uh, you face and what is allowed and not allowed? I mean, I think effectively, as you correctly pointed out, the regulatory framework as it stands today does not allow for bilateral engagements between a developer and a off-taker. At the moment, with I think maybe one minor exception, um, it is only the utility that has the mandate to use the wires to transfer electricity from point A to point B. So I think government is moving towards an open market system at the moment. They allow for up to 10 megawatts behind the fence uh, development of IPPs, but no environment currently exists to use the wires of ESCOM. And to me, it's, it should be fairly straightforward, right? I mean, there is no reason why a developer cannot agree with ESCOM that if you are generating power at point A and it's consumed at point B, and you look at what is required to get the power from A to B, I think it's fairly straightforward to agree a tariff 
that would compensate ESCOM for the use of those wires. Uh, but unfortunately, at the moment, that regulatory environment does not exist. And it is our hope that given the challenges that we face in the country and given the, let's say, limitations that ESCOM currently has, it can only be the private sector that would allow for this type of investment. And I and I hope and uh, I imagine that ESCOM, uh, you know, looks at this and sees the benefit of allowing for for wheeling of power across the wires. And as I said, a formula to agree the compensation for the use of those wires, uh, you know, is not very difficult at all. Uh, thank you, uh, Mo. Uh, Mike, uh, can you explain to us what actually is involved in setting up and uh, getting an IPP up and running? And how are these typically funded through the different phases of the development and finally the operation? Yeah, yeah. thank you, Chris. So I think there's a couple of, uh, of uh, phases. So let's break it down into sort of chunk sites. But so initially, let's call it from inception to financial close, i.e. the development phase. Then there's a construction phase and then operational phase. I think in the first phase, you're looking for developers and shareholders who have an interest and a risk appetite to take that development. Because not every project that's built wins and not every project you want to develop gets to a financial close. In that period of time, where the funding will come from, we'll say the developers, and the activities would also include negotiation of the various contracts, whether it's O&M, EPC, PPAs, etc., land land use agreements etc those all need to be done so that when you get to financial close a, a group of lenders would basically back you and say you need 100 we'll give you 75 to 80 of that and shells you need to put the other 25 or 20 to 25 in so as a percentage so that's where you get to and you get to financial close and now you're all ready to go to go and you issue a notice to proceed and you now go through a construction phase where there's a significant amount of management ensure the contractor behaves and completes the project on time and to budget. And during that phase, a lot of reporting both to implementing authorities, to your lenders, etc., to make sure that you're making progress towards a commercial operation date, which allows you to kickstart revenue under a PPA or whatever form of agreement you have or take agreement you have. So again, a different skill set, different risk profile. So risk profile, basically, people who start early looking for a higher return than those guys who only take equity at financial close and then drive the risk profile through to, to commercial operation. Then there's a third set, once you're now into operations, different type of potential risk profile because you now have operational risk rather than construction or development risk. And as you as you move along the continuum, the risk profile drops and you get a different set of investors who potentially want to look at the price construction will take the operational risk and basically looking for a yield in terms of this these projects, if they perform as forecast or kick of cash flows based on a, a contract that has basically a tariff that adjusts and cost base that you either contract or know what it is. So you can have some certainty around the forecast revenues over the length of the PPA and beyond the PPA because these assets normally long, last longer than the PPA. Different buckets of investors. Uh, Revigo, as a fund, is, a, is looking at the post uh, construction period, we're looking for yield, so we're not willing to take look at development or construction risk, we're looking at the future cash flows, and those sort of returns are pretty good because they're inflation-linked, and also there's some certainty around the off-take, particularly in the renewable space, and they're basically a good investment for 
somebody's looking for yield and certainty and also inflation lift because a lot of these tariffs are adjusted by inflation on an annual basis. Thank you, uh, Mike. And uh, Mike, if I can just ask you to clarify. So uh, in this Revigo Africa Energy Fund, uh, are you looking for uh, yeah, institutional investors, uh, pension funds, or the person in the street who, who wants to buy shares? Uh, who is your target investor? Chris, I think all those categories you mentioned. I, I think, again, this the investment really is around the yield play, i.e. that you get a sort of, not a guaranteed dividend, but a dividend which is fairly well forecast based on the underlying investments you have in your operating projects. So it's really suited to invest who's looking for an alternative to cash, an alternative, there's not a significant capital appreciation underlying equity. This will be a yield, you buy the equity for a yield that will kick off dividends on a sort of semi-annual basis. So it's ideally suited to somebody who wants to balance their investment portfolio with the individual and potentially pension funds who have liabilities on the other side saying, I have an investment which gives me a better return than just buying cash. So that's what it, where it is. And who can buy the shares? Anybody can buy the shares. The shares will be listed uh, on the JSE. So it's open to a broad um, spectrum of investors. So asset managers, pension funds, and the man in the street. The other thing is, as we all know, uh, ESG is becoming a significant uh, driver in the market. And people want to be seen to be doing good and investing in assets that are good for the environment. And Revigo is investing in renewable energy assets only. Um, so again, you get that exposure to the ESG. Uh, Ziad, tell us a bit more about the uh, applications for utilizing an IPP, uh, whether it be utility scale or off-scale or self-generation. And also, I know that Revigo is really targeting sub-Saharan Africa projects. Uh, tell us about the applications in Africa, including, for example, uh, microgrid applications. Thank you, Chris. Yes, um, you know, the, I think it's worthwhile uh, just going through what is actually the, the difference between utility scale, off-grid and, and, and self-generation uh, with, with respect to IPPs. Um, typically, uh, the utility scale um, projects are, are greater than 5 megawatts, um, obviously 5 megawatts being on, on the small side of things in, uh, in, in South Africa, and there's typically greater than 10 megawatts, but in, in the rest of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Greater than five megawatts would be would be viewed as utility scale. Um, from from an off grid uh, application, uh, that can be anything uh, you know between uh, five and five and twenty megawatts, um, uh, which 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 could also include some some mini grid application. Um, and when you talk about self generation, um, that would be for own use. Uh, typically, mines or industrial applications. Uh, would would look to put in place uh, a, a a power plant and, and contract with an IPP uh, for for their own use. Uh, that would be uh, depending on their their requirements and to the extent as as you made the point earlier, uh, if they if the regulations uh, allow for wheeling, uh, they could also then sell into the grid. Um, so you 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 have each of those those type of uh, applications that IPPs are interested in. Obviously, the utility scale uh, application that we've seen uh, very successfully deployed uh, in, in, in South Africa through the, the Renewable Energy uh, IPP program, um, which, is, which has got projects um, that have the, the offtaker being ESCOM, uh, 
Um, and, and that allows for large amounts of investment to come into these projects and, and has showed the success uh, as we've seen now. Um, and, and obviously there are future rounds that are, uh, that are as part of uh, the, the IRP uh, and, and that will continue going forward and attract the investment because it's a known, uh, an, a known type of program. Uh, with respect to, to off-grid, uh, th that is attracting a lot of uh, attention from developers as, uh, particularly in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we're seeing it, we're seeing it uh, happen a lot. Industrial application alongside uh, commercial uh, or off-grid applications are, are, are being looked at. Um, and from that perspective, the, the, the real um, issue is, is, is the lack of willingness of funders, but that has changed over the last few years. Uh, as, as you see more funders looking to s these smaller projects, uh, understanding that, that, that they can be done and, and minimizing the transaction costs to, to get them across the line. Uh, a lot of DFIs uh, play within the, the off-grid space, uh, DFIs being develop, development financing institutions alongside banks. Um, and then the, the self-generation is really a question of uh, what is the, the offtake, uh, you know, if it's a large industrial, a large mine, uh, will, will the, the size, uh, particularly in terms of, uh, of cost and, and cost recovery and revenue for the IPP, will that make sense? And, and we're seeing a lot of uh, interest in this area, uh, in South Africa particularly, um, because uh, recent amendments uh, will allow uh, no, limit to, uh, or no, no limit to the amount of self-generation. Uh, for those projects and, 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 and this year I think we'll see a few of those projects uh, come, come to the market. Gentlemen, um, yeah, I notice in the uh, Rovigo uh, Africa Energy Fund, the assets are really concentrated uh, in terms of renewable energy assets uh, emanating from the earlier rounds of the Renewable Energy IPP program. And that seems to be the fundamental basis. But I'm really interested to ask uh, uh, Mo, uh, I know you've done a lot of projects uh, in the South African context uh, that are commissioned already, some that are in progress. Um, but I, I know that you're a global developer and I'm interested to find out what you think, what NG thinks are the opportunities in Sub-Sahara Africa outside of South Africa as part of this uh, Rovigo Africa Energy Fund. I think, Chris, that um, investments, uh, you know, by their nature requires uh, certainty um, in terms of the environment in which, you know, we make them. And if we talk specifically about Southern Africa, I think generally it is quite challenging to find opportunities in an environment where you can have the degree of comfort for the nature of these investments in terms of the duration that you would require. Um, the second thing is that, um, yes, there is a need for energy infrastructure in sub-Saharan Africa or Southern Africa, uh, but it needs to be aligned with bankability. Um, if you want to make these investments in these environments, you need to ensure that all parts of the project allows you to be able to raise debt financing and even for somebody like Rovigo to participate. As Mike said, they look for yield um, in terms of these investments. And that means that there needs to be a degree of certainty that that, that yield is certain, predictable and effectively you know, guaranteed, let's say, for a significant period of time. And it is finding 
you know that space that allows you to make these investments uh, you know it's not it's not straightforward the second thing to say about investments outside south africa is that the the, the type of investments and the scale of these investments are relatively uh, you know small compared for example to south africa and then you got to factor you know for 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 the scale of these investments whether there is merit uh, as you say in utility type investments or is what we would call corporate ppas uh, you know more uh, suited to the environment of southern or of southern africa and by that i mean as you mentioned earlier uh, you know to build these uh, uh, investments or to build this infrastructure but dedicated to large electricity consumers, uh, you know, such as the mining industry. Ziad, can I pose this question to you? We've heard, uh, certainly in the early rounds of uh, the Renewable Energy IPP program, that the uh, prices, uh, the tariffs uh, are, are rather high. Uh, it was the early stages and perhaps there was a higher risk uh, and more of an unknown in the market, as well as the technology prices were higher in those years. But we hear talk about the uh, desire by the Minister of Energy uh, to renegotiate the, the tariffs. Uh, how does this impact on an investment uh, uh, yielding company uh, like Rivigo, who may have bought assets uh, based on a particular tariff, uh, long-term tariff, and suddenly there is a wish by government uh, to change the rules of the game halfway? Yes, Chris. I, th I think let's let's maybe first clarify um, the word renegotiate is quite a renegotiate is quite a harsh term. Um, I think what the what the minister and what the Department of Minerals and Energy is looking for um, is is some type of sharing benefit that would reduce the tariffs. Um, and and what they the mechanism that they've identified uh, is the refinancing uh, sharing of the refinancing benefits of of the early round IPPs or REIPPs. Um, so in that context, the, the department actually issued a, a, a refinancing protocol. And why refinancing? Because refinancing actually uh, benefits both parties. Um, and, and yes, there, there has been a, a slight tweak to, to the refinancing benefits in that uh, a, to the extent that the, the, the agreements uh, do, do not contemplate a refinancing gain sharing, uh, government has, has put it forward that to the extent that the, the, the IPPs are refinanced and the, the finance docs do change and there is a benefit, government would share in that, in that gain. And there's precedent for that uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the PPP, the public-private partnership market, uh, in the past with, with the TORRAs that, that the two private sector totals that uh, shared their, their refinancing gains as well. So you ask the question, uh, that refinancing, yes, it, it would be, let's call it a, a, a adjustment of the tariff going down for that, uh, by that refinancing gain share uh, with government. Um, and, and from that perspective, government would, would benefit from a slightly lower tariff, but at the same time, uh, the, the project companies where Rovigo's in, invested in would, would result in, in a gain share as well. So, so it's not as if the, the, there is a loss, uh, or in, in fact, it's a gain share, it's a benefit uh, to the individual investment companies or project companies that, that Rovigo's invested in. 
And, and how, does that, how does that gain share uh, occur? It occurs from the, from the, the re, uh, refinancing on better terms on, on the projects that have now de-risked um, and, and getting better lending terms as opposed to the lending terms that were taken out, as you said, in the early days when, when the, the projects were, were perceived as more risky and the projects uh, were, were not yet proven. So from that perspective, uh, from Rovigo, we, we see the refinancing as the, the maturing of the market. Uh, the reduction of the tariff is, is good. It is part of the investment cycle. Um, w w there, there are two ways in which the, the project companies can benefit uh, from, the, from, the, from the refinancing. Uh, one, they could get the, the capital, uh, 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 capital to the refinancing paid to them up front or two, they could have the, the, the dividends increased uh, through the lower funding cost over the life of the project. And we see both of those as benefits to Rovigo uh, in, in that it enhances the project returns uh, or the investment returns uh, for its investors. Many thanks for listening to this, the second in a series of four podcasts brought to you by the Rovigo Africa Energy Fund. And many thanks to our panel today. Michael Misa, Chief Investment Officer at Rovigo Fund Managers. Ziad Sarang, Chief Financial Officer at Rovigo Fund Managers. And Mohamed Hussein, Head of Power and Gas at NG Africa. Stay tuned for the next podcast on where Rovigo has come from and where it is going. If you missed the first podcast, you can access it at the Rovigo website at www revigoenergy.com or www.revigo.co.za The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Revigo Africa Energy Fund or Revigo Africa Energy Limited and do not constitute financial or other advice. Revigo Fund Managers is an authorized financial service provider.